Let's face it, AI has gotten a pretty bad rap in the media and pop culture. Just think of Terminator, Blade Runner or Ex Machina. But I think it's time that we give AI a fair shake. Welcome to Practical AI, the capacity for good, where we speak with some of the brightest minds in the industry about the exciting intersection of AI automation, customer support, and customer experience, and how we can use the latest and greatest technology to help teams do their best work. Machine learning is what makes the AI smarter. And so as the machine continues to learn, it gets better and better. As it does, consumers are going to trust it. Okay, well, hello, everyone. I'm James Deal. Welcome to another episode of Practical AI, The Capacity for Good. Joining me today is Dan Gingis, the author, keynote speaker, and chief experience officer at The Experience Maker. Dan is an award-winning customer experience and customer service expert with over 20 years of experience, helping companies create a competitive advantage with CX and teaching businesses and executives how to create experiences that turn customers into advocates. Dan was also recently named to the list of top customer experience influencers to follow in 2023 by CX Network. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Well, thanks so much, James. It is a pleasure to be here. So, you know, as I just mentioned, you were recently named as one of the top customer experience influencers to follow in 2023. And so with that said, you obviously bring something to this space. I'd love to understand what drew you to this space to kind of get us going here. You know, why CX, why customer experience, and how did it all start? And and what is your focus today as you see this space developing? Sure. Well, I kind of fell into CX by accident in reality. I was a marketer for almost 20 years, uh, straight out of college, started in direct mail, grew into email and social media and SEO and digital website, all that sort of stuff. And uh, when I was at Discover Card for almost 10 years, one of the cool things about that company is they rotate people all the time. If you're in a role more than two years, you're considered ancient. So I got recruited by the chief digital officer into a new role that was called the director of digital customer experience and social media. And I thought this was hilarious that I got recruited because I had never done anything in the space of either customer experience or social media. So I had no idea why the guy wanted me. So I asked him, we went out to lunch and I was like, look, I'm really flattered that you recruited me to this role, but why'd you pick me? And he said something that really changed the whole course of my career. He said, Dan, I've been watching you in business meetings. And I noticed that you always wear the customer hat. You are always trying to solve a business problem through the lens of the customer. And I stopped for a second. I'm like, doesn't everybody do that? And he's <laughs> like, no. And we really need to start doing that in digital. And this was 2012. So he was right. And as soon as I got into that role, and I started to see how much power little customer experience changes could make, what it did to customer satisfaction, how you could so easily get customers to do something different that was better for them just by leading them a slightly different way, you know, in terms of the options that you gave, et cetera, I was hooked. And what I like to joke with people is after 20 years, uh, if I never have to do another marketing campaign again, it'll be too soon. Uh, I would prefer instead to build better customer experiences because when we do that, our customers become our best marketers. They talk about us. And word of mouth marketing is priceless in every industry. You mentioned I'm a keynote speaker. 
How do you think I get onto stages? Most of the time, it's because someone else has seen me speak or someone else has been told by their boss who saw me speak. And it's a referral business, just like almost any other business out there. It grows when other people are talking about you. Makes sense. So you've had a lot of experience in both the B2B and B2C, given your resume of some of the companies you've worked with. You just mentioned Discover as one of them. But what I'd love to do today is focus a little bit more on the B2B side of customer service. I think a lot of times when people think about customer experience, they think about that end user, you and me buying a plane ticket or interacting with a technology vendor or something. But I'd like to kind of see if we can focus this a little bit more on the B2B side of the customer experience. So I'd like to ask, what are your thoughts on a common assertion that B2B customer service representatives face more complex issues than their B2C counterparts? Is that true? Then what are some of the common challenges that B2B customer agents face that might be different? All right. So I know you don't have me on this show just to state the party line. So I'm going to go, I'm going to jump right off the deep end here and tell you, having worked at both B2C and B2B, I don't think B2B is as different from B2C as it thinks it is. And I think one of the biggest problems is that B2B start with this false conclusion that we're different. And the reason why they're not different is that you're not selling to a building. You're not selling to a logo or an enterprise. You are selling to a person. There is a buyer at the other end. There are users of your technology at the other end. And guess what? All of those people, consumers in their real life. And so they think like consumers because they are consumers. And the truth is, whether you like it or not, if they went out last night to dinner with their significant other and had an amazing experience and everybody treated them like royalty and the food was incredible and the service was great, when they get to work the next day and they're dealing with your company, they expect that same experience. And you may not think that's fair. You may not want that to be, but that's how people think. We compare every experience to the last great experience that we had. And I don't think that consumers, humans, make a huge distinction between B2B and B2C as much as the B2Bs do themselves, right? Now, to answer your question directly, I do think there is more complexity in B2B. Sometimes that is fairly earned. Sometimes that's because we've made the complexity ourselves. Uh, and this is true in B2C too, right? Think about healthcare. Healthcare is incredibly complex, but I'll argue it's the healthcare industry's fault that it's that complex. It doesn't have to be, but it just is. And I think B2B often leans into complexity because you're dealing with technology, you're dealing with many different use cases, customizations, all of this in, that kind of add on. And so, yes, I think it's fair to say broadly from an agent perspective that there probably is more complexity. I think that's fair. Okay. So in 2022, you did a video addressing customer service and you talked about the importance of several things, being witty, immersive, shareable, extraordinary, and responsive. The couple that stood out to me in particular, the two were immersive and extraordinary. I'd love for you to expound on that a little bit more. Sure. So you're referring to my wiser methodology, which is in my book and also in my keynote speeches. And what wiser is, it's a way of thinking to create the kinds of experiences that customers B2B or B2C want to talk about. Because ultimately, if we want referrals from them, they got to talk to somebody else. And that's what we want, right? We want them to say, man, I just had a great experience with ABC. I couldn't believe it when they did this. And so in order to create those kinds of experiences, and again, this is a bit of a consumer mindset, but it absolutely happens in the business world too. 
Think about the last time that you, without anybody asking you to, pulled out your phone to take a picture of something. Why did you do that? What was going on that was worthy of you pulling out your phone? And what the Wiser methodology does is it helps companies create that experience, that moment where somebody says, I got to take a picture of this. Now, if we're lucky, they share it on social media and they've got a million followers. Doesn't always happen that way, right? Maybe they just share it with a colleague at work. Maybe they share it with a colleague at a different company. That's a pretty quick way to earn a referral, right? Hey, I heard you were looking for a great accountant. I just had this amazing experience with my accountant. Let me tell you about it. Okay, that's how referrals happen, right? So, But we've got to give them, as the song says, we got to give them something to talk about. So you asked about immersive and extraordinary. Immersive is probably the hardest of the five, I'll just be honest. An immersive experience is one that we feel in our bones, that like we just, we wholeheartedly experience. And if you turn it around, the way to create an immersive experience is to either focus on one or more of the five senses or to focus on people's emotions. When we have an emotional moment, it's memorable, right? Positive or negative. But when you hit on my emotions, I'm going to remember that. You know, perfect example in a B2C world is I feel like you could walk me into a Starbucks blindfolded and I would know I was in a Starbucks, right? Because you know the sounds, you know the smells, you could taste the coffee and probably know it's Starbucks, right? And that's very intentional. The whole experience is built around you feeling things in your senses. Let me give you a B2B example. This is actually a former client of mine, just to disclose. Banco Dental is the third largest dental supplies and equipment distributor in the U.S. So they sell to dental offices or orthodontists, that sort of thing. Now, there's tons of equipment and supplies in a dental office, tons and tons, right? And they range from literally the tissue box on the counter, welcome table when you come in, all the way up to a $100,000 3D x-ray machine. And Banco sells all of this. They also sell design services. So if you are building a new office or maybe you're refurbing your existing office, it's a, literally an interior design service for dentists. Okay, so how do we get dentists to think about redesigning their office? Because guess what? When they redesign their office, generally they're buying new equipment and they're buying whole new supplies and furniture, all of which Banco sells. So Banco created what they call a VIP experience. They fly out dentists and a guest because they know that if the spouse or the significant other comes, they're going to already increase their chances of success. They invite them out to one of three locations in the US where they have 25 working operatories already set up. The operatory is the room you go in to get your teeth clean, right? Now, when I say working operatory, what I mean is there's lights there's machines, there's equipment, there's supplies, there's furniture. It works. You could get your teeth clean there if you really wanted to. The reason they have this is that all 25 have different things about them. They have different kinds of furniture, different styles, different heights. Maybe you have a dentist that's really tall and needs a bit of a higher furniture so that they can reach stuff better. There's different ways, you know, the overhead lighting, there's lots of different types that there are. So they let the dentists come in and play around and figure out what is most comfortable for them. Then they bring them into a room where they start to take the various pieces that the dentists like and they build the office for them. Now, all of this is done completely for free. Why in the world would they do that, right? It's expensive. They're flying people out, putting them in a hotel, whatever. 
It is because 75%, 75% of the dentists that they bring in for this full day experience end up redesigning their office with Banco Dental. And guess what? They also buy the furniture and the equipment and the supplies from. So it's an upfront investment, but it is incredibly experiential. It is immersive because we're putting the dentist literally in the chair that he or she's going to sit in and we let them experience it for themselves. So that's an example of immersive. No, that's great. I think you explained immersive very well to the point where I think it's pretty clear what the impact that an immersive experience has. So yeah, extraordinary. Now, what does extraordinary look like? Sure. So I would actually say extraordinary is the opposite side of the coin in that I think it can be one of the easier ones. The reason for that is the definition of extraordinary simply means a little bit better than ordinary. It doesn't mean miles better than ordinary. It just means better. And the good news for all of the folks that are watching or listening to this is chances are your competitors are ordinary. So all you've got to do is be a little bit better than them. Even if you're selling something substantially the same at substantially the same price, this is where customer experience can be the ultimate differentiator because we can create an experience that is just simply better than our competitors. And that's what gets us to extraordinary. One of my favorite examples of this is a B2C, but I think it plays really well in the B2B world because all of the examples that I share, they're across industries, right? So it doesn't matter if you don't work in this industry. The idea is we can learn from any industry. And again, this is why I always encourage B2Bs Think like consumers, because if you're never looking at consumer industries for inspiration, you're missing where lots of the fun is happening, right? There's a hotel that I travel a lot for speaking gigs, and I was staying at a hotel one night. And I don't know if this happens to you, but whenever I wake up in the middle of the night in a hotel, it's always darker than it is at home. And I have to go to the bathroom, but you know, one time before I, I crashed into the bed trying to get there and I know I plugged in my phone somewhere and I don't want to trip on the cord. So I very gingerly put my feet down on the floor. As soon as I do that, a motion activated light at the bottom of the nightstand illuminates the path to the bathroom. Mm, magical. <laughs> at 2.30 in the morning, I'm like, Great. So I go to the bathroom, come back, being the customer experience guy that I am, I got to get down on hands and knees and see what's going on here, take a picture of it from my book and my presentation. And it turns out that this is like a 50 cent stick on light that they have just stuck onto the bottom of the nightstand. It's not expensive. It's not operationally complex, but it totally transforms the experience from ordinary to extraordinary. And so the reason I love that example is it doesn't take millions of dollars to do this. Now, one last thing about this example, we got to look at, well, how did they think of this? How did this ever even come up? Well, it was one of two ways, and either way is perfectly acceptable. Method number one, they listened to their customers. Customers were telling them, it's too dark in the room. I banged into the bed. I tripped over the phone cord. Like, you need more lights. They listened to customers, and they took action, something that all companies should continue to do. The second, and this is really key, and it is harder for B2Bs, but it is not impossible. The second is that an executive of this hotel company decided to spend the night in his or her own hotel, something that executives don't do nearly enough. Become a customer of your own company. And that executive went to bed that night and just like me, woke up in the morning in the middle of the night, had to go to the bathroom and said, man, it's dark in here. And then they said, maybe we should do something about that. And Hence, the light. 
So I always encourage people to the best of your ability, become a customer of your own business. Log into your own platform. Forget your password and go through that process because I'll bet it's a lot of fun for your customers. We don't ever spend enough time doing the things we make our customers do. So we never know kind of how annoying they are. But again, we put on our own consumer hats. We know that it's annoying to fix a password. We hate doing that. So then why do we make our customers do it? And let's figure out a way to do it better so that it isn't as arduous for our customers. That's some fantastic advice. I think, you know, drinking your own Kool-Aid, that, you know, being a customer of your own business, really, really important. And that illustration was really powerful. Something you mentioned, however, in what you were talking about is that competing on price, that can be really hard to do. Typically, I think you'd call it a loser's game, right? I do. Loser's game. It's a race to the bottom. Right. Not a good way to get to the top. So how do you see the advent of the customer experience as really predominantly the thing to leverage for differentiation? How do you see that as being significant? And who are some successful people that you have seen employ the customer experience and stand out against competitors, even when their price might even be a little bit more expensive, for instance? Yeah, great question. I look at competing on price as a loser's game because it's a race to the bottom. Competing on product or service also really hard. Look, I know most B2Bs think that their product or service is unique and different from anybody else. At the end of the day, most of the time, you're doing something similar to a number of direct competitors. You might have the best CRM in the world, but there's still Salesforce over there doing CRM too, right? And they've been doing it longer and whatever. And so unless you have a truly, truly unique service that no one else offers, it is very difficult in the B2B space to say, well, we are totally different. By the way, in B2B, if you are totally different, the challenge you're gonna run into is nobody knows they need you, or you don't know what department to go talk to because there's no buyer for what you're selling. So you take product and price out of the equation and essentially what's left is experience. And that's why I think it is such the differentiator because every company can compete on experience, And one of the good things about experience is it's generally delivered two ways. It's delivered by technology. It's also delivered by your employees. No one else has your employees. So by definition, your employee base is unique. You can have a unique customer experience because it's delivered by them. And so when we start to think that way and we start to think about how uh, customer retention, customer stickiness is so critical to success in B2B, we got to make customers feel proud to be our customers, feel like we've got their back, feel like if something goes wrong, we're going to be there immediately to fix it. Feel like when they sign a contract, they just made the best career decision of their lives. That's the kinds of things we go back to appealing to emotions, right? Mm -hmm. I always love telling the story to B2B groups. Think about what happens in a B2B when we sign a new contract. Almost every company has some sort of celebration. Either it's a Slack channel or they ring a bell or they go out for drinks or whatever it is they do, they're celebrating the win. That's great. The problem is the people who made that win possible, your brand new customer, are not invited to the celebration. So let's think about what they're doing instead. Well, that person's going home that night to their significant other and they're going home one of two ways. They're either going home and saying, man, honey, I just signed a $2 million deal today. I hope this works out because if it doesn't, my boss is going to fire me. I am Mm, really nervous. I think I made the right decision, but I don't know. Or they go home and they say, honey, 
I just signed a $2 million contract today. It's going to get me promoted because I did all the research and I found the best company out there. And I love these guys because they've got my back. And I know that they are going to deliver what they said. And I am so confident about this decision. I feel great. Mm, that's powerful. Okay, Two very different experiences, <laughs> yes, right? Right, right. So unless you're doing anything to ensure the second one's happening, what's likely happening is the first one. And again, not to overstate the point that your buyer is also a consumer. This is what we call in the consumer world buyer's remorse. Everybody has it. We go buy something big and expensive. We're worried we made a mistake. It's very natural. So for B2Bs, that moment when you're ringing the bell and you're having that party, bring that customer in to that celebration. Put a literal or figurative arm around them and say, you just made the best decision of your career. We're going to help you get promoted. We're going to be with you every step of the way. And I'm telling you, you're going to make a huge difference at the very beginning of a relationship when it matters the most. I love that. That is one of the best pieces of advice I've heard in a long time about when that sale is over, what are you doing to actually make that customer feel really good about the decision they just made? That's powerful. Good stuff. So you have a quote and the quote says, any company can improve the customer experience by focusing on the best asset they already have, existing customers. So kind of what we were just talking about, really prioritizing and putting on a pedestal, almost if you will, the current customer. And so one of the things, especially in the economy we're dealing with right now, is a pullback, is spending slowing. And so companies are looking at, hey, we have existing customers that love our product, that are still buying from us. How do we continue to drive expansion revenue, especially for SaaS companies when they're looking at how do we get more revenue out of our current customers? I think some of the things you're driving at here are probably key to ensuring good opportunities with expansion revenue. Can you talk about how you see those two things playing together? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if your company is like most, if you look at the amount of money that you spend on sales and marketing, and you compare it to the amount of money you spend on your existing customers, there's like no comparison, right? It'll be multiple, multiple times bigger trying to acquire new customers. Now, we've all seen the same statistics that show that it is a whole lot cheaper to keep a customer than it is to acquire a new one. And yet we don't put the resources behind it. And part of that is because I think there is an over-focus on what you're calling expansion of revenue or other people call cross-selling, upselling, et cetera. My first focus when I have a customer come in the door is making sure that 1,000% I deliver what I promised to them, right? Because they're never buying anything else from me if I don't. So the first thing we got to do is do what we said we were going to do. And if we can do it, you know, in a friendly and human way along the way and make them feel good and all that, that's even better. The second thing I want to make sure is that they stay with me for more than just however many months or years, right? That they renew. Okay. Honestly, I don't care if they renew for more money or for the same money. I just want them to stay. Because if I could tell you today that 100% of your new customers will stay with you forever, you'll never worry about upselling again because you won't have to, right? Part of the reason why we end up with this massive focus, not only on upselling, but on new sales is because of something that I like to call the leaky bucket. And what this is, is we've got customers every day that are leaving us. Why? Because we didn't deliver what we promised or their expectations weren't met. 
Now, the worst people that leave us are the ones that leave us and don't even tell us why. They just don't renew and you never get an answer. You're sitting there saying, well, what do we do? Was it something we said? We have no idea. And that really stinks because we can't make any changes. So I much prefer a customer, if they're going to leave, I much prefer they leave and give me all the litany of complaints because at least I can figure out how to prevent the next customer from leaving. But again, we've spent very little money in the B2B space on trying to retain customers. There's so much of a focus on getting them to spend more. Let's get them to stay first, right? Because if they're not here, they're not spending anything. And then we can work on the upside. Okay, good. So let's transition a little bit here and, and talk a little bit about the thing that is top of mind for so many people right now, AI, automation chat GPT, right? So based on your experience, what is the impact of AI automated customer support on the B2B experience? And how can that help companies gain a competitive edge? So first thing I think is we've got to have the right philosophy. Every time there is new technology, whatever it is, there are some companies that say, awesome, this is going to be great because now we don't need X again. Right. And in the case of, say, chatbots, right, it was we could fire customer service people and save millions of dollars. That is not the philosophy that I would advise. Right. So let's all just take a step and say, all right, technology is wonderful. It's getting better and better. I am marveling at the fact that we are in what the second generation now of chat GPT, which was like a month after the first generation. I mean, we are still at the very, very beginning of all of this. And it's mind-blowing, right? So it only gets better over time. But let's not look at it as a replacement. Let's look at it as a supplement, as a complement. I always like to imagine, for example, remember IBM's Watson, the one that went on to Jeopardy and beat all the humans? Well, I always love to imagine in my head a customer service agent that's sitting next to Watson, right? Now, again, you're going to sense a theme here. I always like to, when I talk about getting people's shoes, like I really want to do it, right? So let's think about this agent. This agent has all the confidence in the world because they know that any answer to any question, they got it right here. They got the Jeopardy champion right next to them, right? So they know they're going to know the answer to a question. They also know that they're not going to have to spend time looking at 17 screens and opening all these and typing this and clack, 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 and this and all because they're sitting next to the Jeopardy champion. That's just going to tell them the answer. Well, if we now put ourselves into that customer service agent's body, our job now is just to be human. It's just to have a conversation with the customer. To make that human connection. To make the connection and have a relationship, right? Because we got all the answers over here. Now, that is a fabulous use of AI because it's and different from saying, oh, well, wait a minute, we don't even need Sally, the agent, we can just have Watson do. Mm, well, there we've lost the human interaction, right? And so to me, that's not as good of an answer. But when we have a fully informed, fully confident, and focused on the customer, Sally, right, who is now like, my whole job is just to relate to the customer. Now we've got a great experience for the customer because we have a nice person on the other line who is helpful and friendly. Guess what? They also know the answer to they all, got my all questions. the answers. All the yes. answers. <laughs> so now we have that's to me the perfect scenario. And again, when chatbots first came out, like the first thing that happened is a bunch of companies were like, okay, well, we'll just have the computers do it. And I think they found out really quickly 
A, customers weren't ready for it, and B, neither was the technology. And so someday, maybe the technology will be good enough to look and sound like a human and have all of the answers and finally replace Sally's job. But I personally think we're still quite a ways from that. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. I think especially that there are so many things that consumers today, customers today feel like a chat conversation with a bot is sufficient for. But you get into a complex, you want some empathy, you want some understanding that the AI just doesn't have today. You have to talk to a human. That escalation has to be seamless and it has to be quick in order for that experience to even work. One thing I am excited about is now this ability with ChatGPT to sort of upload your own information, right? So let's say I've got, you know, 20,000 pages of uh, user guides and every question that's ever been asked in the history of our company, and I can upload all this there. Again, not possible for a human to consume all of that. And even if we just think about how would your customer find that, like you got to search the right term and all that. Now, if all I got to do is kind of just ask my question and ChatGPT can go figure out the answer from the volumes and volumes of data that we have, that's great. And so now I might be, you know, working on your system at two o'clock in the morning when your customer service is closed and I can still get my answer. And that is also a great experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what tactics can or should be to be companies use to measure the success of their customer support automation and its impact on customer service. Do the metrics change? Should how we measure success in that space start to look different now that we add automation and AI? Yeah. So I always like connecting metrics as quickly as possible to the bottom line. Because at the end of the day, when you're talking to a C-level executive, that's all they care about. Okay. And, and let's just take this from a CX perspective. There's lots of CX teams and they talk about their NPS score, net promoter score, right? It's a very good indicator of how we're doing at a moment in time, but it doesn't tell us why. And so I have witnessed this time and time again, right? When it goes up, everybody cheers and we ring the bell and we go to the Slack channel and we say, we're so great, our NPS score went up. And when it goes down, we say things like, oh, it must be the pandemic or the weather or climate change or you know, whatever. We blame sure. it on something. The truth is we have no idea either way. None. Mm, and so what we point. have to start doing is we've got to start tying metrics like that back to the bottom line. So let's take your example. The first thing I would look at is some metric around the accuracy of the AI. And that's a pretty objective metric, right? How many times out of 100 does it give an answer that the customer is happy with? And even with ChatGPT, right, because it's a conversation, you can measure, like, how many times do I have to clarify myself until you actually give me the answer that I want? Quick example, the other day I asked ChatGPT, I was writing a blog about the new Starbucks CEO and how the first thing he did was get his barista certification. And he also committed to spending a half a day a month in a store as a worker. And so I asked ChatGPT, what other CEOs have worked in their stores. And it gave me an answer, but it wasn't what I was looking for. The answer it gave me was, here are 10 CEOs that started off on the front lines and rose up in the ranks to become a CEO. Good answer to some question, but not the question I was asking. So I had to clarify it. And I said, no, how many CEOs are working on the front lines while they're CEOs? And it gave me a different answer. 
So that we can objectively measure the percentage of time that the computer is right versus not right. Okay, now let's link that to some satisfaction measure because we're gonna have a, a one question survey at the end of each engagement that asks the customer, you know, how satisfied are you? Or maybe it's an NPS question about, would you recommend this to a friend, et cetera. And we can see that all of the times that it's right, our NPS score is here and all the times it's wrong, our NPS score is there. Now we take NPS and we link it to the retention of that customer, the retention rate. How long does that customer stay our customer? I think customer retention rate is probably the most important metric of, that any B2B should be measuring. Because again, as I said before, if 100% of the customers we bring in the door never leave, our entire business looks a whole lot different than it looks today. And so if we can take the accuracy, connect it to the satisfaction and connect the satisfaction to the retention rate, now we basically can tell our executives the accuracy is driving retention. And that is a number that they understand because they know the value of every customer is X thousand dollars. And so the more customers we retain, the more money we make. Great structure for being able to look at that. And those are the kind of things that I think businesses are going to have to be rethinking is how do we look at what AI is doing for us or not doing for us? And how do we, and to your point, draw that to the bottom line? Yeah. And I suppose there is a piece on this bottom line thing, to be fair, there's a piece where there's probably a cost savings as well, because the AI probably has replaced some hours of human work. And obviously in your calculation, you'd add that in as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like you to put your kind of futuristic hat on, think about AI and customer service in the future. So as this evolves, what do you think customer support looks like a decade from now? And maybe even it's two years from now, right? At the rate at which technology is <laughs> going to be two weeks from now. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So just look in the future. What are some key things you see changing or expanding from what we see that today? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things we often either don't talk about when we talk about AI or we mush it together like it's the same thing is machine learning, mm. right? Machine learning is what makes the AI smarter. And so as the machine continues to learn, it gets better and better. And we've seen this just through two versions of chat GPT, right? It is going to keep getting better and better. I think as it does, consumers are going to trust it more. I mean, I will tell you as a consumer, with no offense to anybody out there, when I see a chatbot on a site, my first reaction is to roll my eyes because I got a pretty good shot of not getting my question answered, right? And part of that is because, look, initial chatbots were pretty dumb. It was like, you know, it was basically taking the IVR from the phone, which is the press one for this, press two for this, and just digitizing it. Now, raise your hand, or if you're driving in the car, keep your hands on the wheel, but you know, let me know if you really like going through an IVR on the phone. Like, Is that an enjoyable experience? No. But when the first chatbots came out, all we did was just transfer that to the digital. And we said, well, tell us what would you like to do? Would you like to do A, B, C, or D? Uh, well, I'd like to do L. Is, it, is that a choice? No, I'm sorry. It's not. Okay, well, then we're Agent. done. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so I think that because there was a lot of frustration caused to users, business users, my belief is there's a lot of skepticism. As it gets better, that skepticism will go away. And I do think there is a time. I don't think it's right now. I think right now, humans, especially post-pandemic, we crave human interaction. So we want to deal. We want to talk to another human. But I do think over time, as this gets better 
And we start to trust that, yeah, I can ask this robot pretty much anything and I'm going to get the right answer. We're going to feel better about it. And I do think whether it's 10 years down the road or whatever it is, that we will start to see the vast majority of customer service interactions happen without a human. I still think you will always have those super technical, super complicated, once in a lifetime, unique questions that you're going to need a human for. But I see that percentage going way down as the machine learning goes way down. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I think right now there's nothing more frustrating than a bad experience with a chatbot. But I also think a great experience is one where you, in a sentence, say what you need, they understand it, they get you your answer, and you move on. It's like, that's an amazing experience. So when it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's horrible. <laughs> I think. Yes, it's- and we need a little bit more consistency for people to start trusting. You know, I just read a story today, a pretty frightening story about something that ChatGPT did that in my mind causes me to trust it less. And so we've got to get to a point, and I fully believe in version whatever number it's going to be, that we will be able to trust it. I mean, I don't know if people know this, but at the bottom of every page on ChatGPT, it says information may not be correct. Right, <laughs> like, right. It's right there. And so it is telling us, hey, it's still learning, right? And it will continue to get better. And so as it does, we'll trust it more. And then I think consumers will be more willing. I won't roll my eyes when I land on a chatbot. I'll be like, oh, I'm going to get my answer quickly. And that will be a great feeling. And to your point earlier, I think it's about the data. I mean, that really is the underlying part. The large language model and chat GPT is just a tool to easily interact with and extract information from the data. So it's about the data set. And as you said, when you have a company that puts their data set behind the tool, that's where it's, you're going to get good data. You're going to get good answers. Hopefully, because garbage in, garbage out is still going to be a problem, right? And so if we've got good data, if we've got really good documentation and we do have all of the answers well documented, then yeah, this thing will work super well for us. If it's a bunch of junk, it's not going to. Yeah, agreed. Well, so just what I wanted to open this up as we wrap up here. Is there anything else that is we think about the B2B customer experience? You've touched on retention. You've talked about the immersive experience, the extraordinary experience. I'd heard recently that if you can just consistently deliver a little above average, and I think that's kind of what you were touching on, that extraordinary experience doesn't take that much more than ordinary or than average. So we've talked about some of these things. Is there anything else that you'd kind of like to add in closing as we kind of start to wrap up here around key findings or your insights around this topic we've been discussing today? Yeah. Anytime you're in a meeting and the conversation goes to a place where somebody says, well, we've always done it that way, Mm. or we're doing it this way because all our competitors do it this way. Those should be bright, loud sirens in your head saying, "Uh uh-uh, this is not how we should do it. Because if all of our competitors are doing it this way, then we're not going to be differentiated. And if we've always done it this way, it probably means it's old thinking, right? And even if it was working, maybe it can work better. Let me leave you with this story, uh, which is probably one of my favorite B2B stories from my book. There was a design company, a website design company that was working with a B2B client, and they were redesigning the website. And the client was absolutely adamant that they wanted a certain navigation structure at the top of the page. You've probably seen it. Products, services, resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the design agency said, no, you don't want this. And they said, yes, we do, because this company has it, and this company has it, and this company has it. We want to be like them. And they said, but the problem is those aren't the right headings. They're back and forth. 
the design agency finally says, fine, we're going to prove it to you. And they go out and they do a survey. They've essentially build a website of ABC company and they go out to users and they say, hey, if you were looking for this, where would you go on this site? And they offer them products, services, resources, and something else. The study came back and it will blow your mind. Basically, all four answers came up equally the number of times, right? In other words, no one had any idea where to find anything. Mm. But this company wouldn't move because their competitors were using the same navigation. So they felt like that's what they had to do. Wrong answer, right? And so what turned out to be, and this study also cited as a B2C example, cited Chewy as a really nice example of navigation. That you know, Chewy figures out very quick, what animal are you talking about? Are you talking about food or medication? Like it, it sends you down a tree really fast to get to where you want to go. It doesn't use broad, vague words like products and resources and services. People don't know what that is. But that's a great example of a way we've always done it or a way our competitors are doing it. And you should stop yourself and say, we got to do something different. And I do think that AI is going to help us with this and is going to help to figure out how to solve these things in a different way. And so that makes me very positive about it. But as you're thinking about other aspects of the business and of the experience that have nothing to do with AI, those are generally the warning signs that I try to pay attention to. And if you start paying attention, you will realize how often it actually comes up. Why does our invoice say this? I don't know. It's always said it that way. Okay, let's change it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. Right. Great insight, very practical and applicable to businesses and B2B and what we're dealing with right now, trying to identify how do we differentiate ourselves in an extremely competitive market, customer experience. So in wrapping up, one more question here as we talk about experiences. This one's a softball. So if you could create a life experience, when I personally think about opportunities with family or friends that are memorable, those are typically experiences, right? Those are the things that as you were talking about, the sense they engage the senses, they create emotion and they make memories. So in the business that you're in with customer experience, if you could create a life experience for yourself or your family without regard to cost, what would that be? What would it look like? Wow. That's a great question. I have never been asked that question before. You know, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say that the answer is different for everyone. And so as business people, we have to understand and appreciate that. Is it whatever answer I give you, your answer is going to be different because you're a different person. You have different family members. You have different likes and tastes and all that sort of thing. And so I guess my broad answer, which again, might be a little bit cheating, is that I would wish for an experience that was customized to me and my family, that it felt like it was designed for us, not for us and the deals and the Smiths and the Joneses, but just for us. And that whatever that is going to look like, I know it's going to feel great. Yeah. Well, hey, it was so great to chat with you today, Dan. Appreciate your time. This was uh, very insightful and I think helpful. And I look forward to being able to chat sometime in the future. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. I appreciate it. And if anybody else uh, you know, wants to talk or has a question, one of the things I preach in my book, uh, the R in Wiser is being responsive. So please reach out. I'll be happy to respond. My email is dan at dangingus.com. That's me. It's not an assistant. It's not a bot. It's just going to be me. So if you have a question or hit me up on LinkedIn or wherever you'd like to be, would love to continue the conversation.
Perfect. Well, thanks for joining us today and take care. So long. Practical AI, the capacity for good is brought to you by Capacity, an automated help desk, knowledge base and customer experience platform. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you would like to improve your customer experience and internal operations, head over to capacity.com and get started for free. On behalf of the whole team, thanks for listening.